Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport discipline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back, everyone, to the virtual studio. I am super excited to bring you this podcast here today as I had the opportunity to sit down with another Hall of Fame athlete to talk about his career. And that athlete is none other than Carl Roberge. That's right. We get the opportunity to sit down with Carl to talk about his 20-year professional career in water skiing, which included more than 100 professional victories. He was able to grab 21 U.S. Open titles. He's an eight-time Masters champion in slalom, jumping, and overall. He was a member of six U.S. teams, five of which were through the 1980s, one in 1995. But his greatest accomplishment came in 1996, where he went undefeated on the Water Ski Pro Tour in professional jumping. Carl has been quoted of saying, quote, my biggest career accomplishment was to go undefeated on the Pro Tour in jumping in 1996. Nobody's ever gotten undefeated on the Pro Tour. End quote. An incredible accomplishment. And especially when we look back in this episode at who was on the Pro Tour in professional jumping in 1996. You're going to learn a lot in this episode. And it was so fun to recap Carl's career with him. Sit back and relax and enjoy this episode with Carl Roberge. Well, welcome back into the Hit It podcast. Super excited to bring you this guest here today, this Hall of Fame guest here today, Carl Roberge. Carl, thanks for joining us in the Hit It podcast. Hey, thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, we got a ton of ground to cover. I'm so stoked. <laughs> for anybody that's on the YouTube channel, you can see Carl's got his body glove poster and some ski posters and uh, looks like some surfing going on in the background, so there's a lot to talk about. But Carl, <laughs> it's so good to catch up with you. It is really, really good. Um, I see you out there on LinkedIn. You're doing all sorts of stuff still in the business world, and um, I really wanted to go back and recap your career and also get get some thoughts from you about current things that are happening in skiing. So, with that being said, um, tell us a little bit about how Carl Roberge got started into water skiing. <laughs> um it's all it's all pretty simple uh, my um my parents were avid snow skiers when we were little and um, when we moved to california um southern california there wasn't much snow where we were in san diego so my dad decided that um he wanted to get into water skiing and then some of our neighbors were were doing it and so we were all pretty young you know um three four five years old and so we just took to it pretty good. We, the family got a boat and we just started off. We didn't know a thing about water skiing and we just um, got a pair of combos and started going after it. My dad actually was really interested in racing because in San Diego, racing was a big deal. And so he was talking about building a boat and driving us and the whole deal. And that kind of fell, fell out because uh, we went to go watch the national championships, which were in um, San Diego. And 
they're hauling some kids off to the hospital and they're not well that's what i was gonna say was he like hey we went out to catalina one day and uh how did that go (laughs) yeah no no yeah and it just started going downhill i was i was up for it but they decided to go a different route and so we kind of drove around mission bay and we ended up pulling up in front of a water ski tournament for mission bay water ski club we we got in the way of course you know not knowing what we're doing we kind of idled into the middle of a tournament and um, then we ended up beaching the boat a bunch of people ran up to us and say hey you know can the kids ski and wait and they go yeah and they go well enter carl in the tournament first time so i ended up entering the tournament didn't know what a slalom course was they had to show me where the buoys were and what to do of course, it was a miserable experience as far as what I did. I made like maybe one or two buoys. But at that point, my parents were pretty competitive people. And so was I. And we go after we went and, and skied in the tournament. We basically were, were like, well, when are you guys doing this again? Because I want to practice and try it again. And that set things in motion. <laughs> Very cool. So you're just out there randomly just trying to find a body of water. You stumble right. upon a water ski tournament. And then, I mean, that basically accelerates your career into the junior ranks. What I, About what time period is that? This is probably in the, you know, early, mid, mid-70s, mid you know. Okay. So I'm dating myself here. I'm getting real old. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's a really good question because, you know, I have twin boys right now. I'm teaching them how to go through the slalom course. And we're trying to figure out adequate water time because water time is so important when you're trying to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, as you found out, you stumble across slalom course. What is this? How do you go uh, through the course, around the buoys? What's the proper technique? And, and I've always been a big, big advocate. Hey, the longer you can stay out there, the better, if you can get as much water time as possible. But I wanted to hear it from you. When, when you're a youngster going through the ranks, how many sets per week or per day are you trying to get under your belt? Because eventually you get into three event skiing. The, the amount that I skied when I was in California is, is really not that much compared to what I did later on when I had access to you know, private lakes and things like that. So typically when I was a little kid, I was probably skiing maybe three times a week. And every time I'd go, I I would have to share time, not only with other people in the ski club, but your whole family. I mean, you could spend half the day out there and you might ski like two or three times. Okay. And and your sisters became very accomplished as well in the sport right. of water skiing. So yeah, there's a lot to go around. Th- three kids, right? Yeah. You and your two sisters. So yeah, th- that's a lot. And plus, if, you're, if your parents are skiing, um, that's a full day at the lake. Yeah, it, it, is. it is. So trick skiing is a little different. You know, you don't have to have too much equipment. You know, you don't have to have the song course or the ski jump. So um, we spent the majority of our time actually doing that just because it didn't take up other people's time. You could kind of do it anywhere, but specifically the slalom and the jump are very specific and you really can't get better unless you're using those devices that, that come with that. Sure. So you're in California at the time. Eventually there's a switch to move to Florida. Is that still when you're in the junior ranks? No, I was... About I was 16 when I moved to Florida. We we were in California for quite a bit. That was the 
when I moved to Florida, I just, I went into open. Uh, so I was skiing in the open class. That was my first year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that, that's, that's truly amazing to think about considering you really didn't have, I would say you had water time, but not comparatively to the competition probably at the time that was training in Florida. I don't know. We, we were, we were blessed with some talent <laughs> and, you know, things were a little easier just because we picked it up quick. In the end, when push came to shove, it, it, uh, the hard work and, uh, the time on the water makes the difference. You know, you can get a good start by learning things with, with some talent, but really to win consistently, it's, is a whole nother ball game. And, that's why we really had to go to Florida because it, it, we weren't going to be able to reach our goals staying in California where we were anyways. Sure. So in California, you're, you're making your way up to the ranks. You're basically at a professional level by the age of 16. Are you looking up to anybody at this particular time or being coached by anybody that's kind of showing you, Hey, here's the next step to go in your career. You know, <clears throat> when we were, you know, I, I, I got to train with some of the, the, the big coaches, you know, from time to time, but we didn't really have the resources in our family to, to be able to hire somebody to do that. So we were just doing it on our own. <clears throat> um, my sister, Karen, and I were extremely competitive with each other. So I was always competing with her and trying to learn things you know, and, and helped each other. Um, my mom drove us all the time when we were kids. And, um, but basically, you know, if we got the time to get some coaching for some great people, it was just few and far between. It'd be maybe a few days here and there. And, um, but we were appreciative of it and, um, always took the, the advice. Um, Jack Travers helped me when with my ski jumping right when I made the transition from five foot to six foot. Uh, Russ Stifler that would help me in trick skiing years ago in in Palm Beach, um, and uh, and we, we had a few others as well. But those are just some of the ones that we got in California. We had when we were little. I mean, people in the ski club would always give us their advice, and it was really on a basic level. It was more of encouragement kind of thing. And, um, you know, we ski with, a, a, a lot of different, um, ski clubs in, in Southern California. And there were people that were helpful trying to get us through, you know, tough parts. And, uh, especially in slalom where I think we, I got the most help in California. That's amazing too, Carl, because you make an incredible run as an overall skier and to think how much time that takes and really not having a ton of coaching, really just trying to go out there and figure it out on your own, getting a lot of encouragement, a little tip here and there yeah. and taking a look at it. But you've been a part of six U.S. teams. And so U.S. teams are very difficult to make and you got to be well-rounded. It's amazing to think too, and let's take tricks, for example, right? Tricks, now that we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, 14, 15 year old kids are almost tricking just as much as the pros. And it's it's almost a sport that if you miss that space and time younger in your career, it's it's more difficult to catch up later. Was there any event that you had a little bit more difficulty just because you, you know, tried to get to Florida later on and, and hey, I need to make up some ground here to maybe round out how well of an overall skier I am? Tricks was is was always the most difficult, and it always took the most time and the most patience. And 
I mean, that, that was, that was the real struggle for me always in that event. Um, I never really tried to be the best at that. Corey Picos was, and Corey, I mean, they were just a whole nother league. We weren't even, most of the overall skiers weren't competitive with them and we couldn't even come close, but they, um, they were definitely an inspiration and somebody we tried to learn from, and they're always happy to help with spreading the knowledge. They knew they were, you weren't interested in trying to be the tricks champion you were just going to be there but i've had some a few second place finish seconds and thirds here and there and and tricks but it's it's by far the most difficult and i'm so impressed with the kids today doing it the women uh men i mean the women i'm just i'm in awe i'm like how do you do that yep (laughs) yeah yeah i think now we have at least three women's trick skiers that have tricked over 11 Right. And so it, it it is, it's, it's mind blowing. So you're, you're 16 years old, you make the move to Florida. Now you are riding this wave of professional water skiing through the eighties that is really on the uptick. And so uh, I know, and you're at a time of skiing against Sammy Duvall every weekend. I mean, big, big names on the pro tour. Uh, what's it like during that time? Because now you're trying to say, oh, you know, we're on TV. We can get sponsors. We can do all these yeah. things. It had to be just uh, a crazy time. And you guys are the Mavericks. You're just figuring yeah. this out. It, it, it was it was really amazing time to, to be in the sport. It, when at when I was, you know, 16, 17, it was just sort of taken off. And it was um, probably a lot little, you know, well, I wouldn't say more like now, but it was at the beginning of the pro stages. And it was difficult, we had to really stand our ground and try to support the professional events and, and just work in that direction. And the amateur events would would kind of follow the wayside that were really big at the time. Um, But then the pro events would just get swamped. And so we really try to support those events. And on the sponsorship side as well, it was, um, there's standards to be set too. I mean, if, if, if certain athletes would sign really weak contracts, you just hope that it wasn't somebody that was winning. Um, and the winning athletes were able to, with you know, Sammy, myself, and some of the others were able to negotiate some really nice terms. Um, but we had to maintain that that winning level. And it was really fun. The notoriety, I mean, we weren't rock stars, but we were everywhere. If you went out to dinner, most any any place, somebody would come up and want to meet you every time you went out. I mean. And it wasn't like you're walking down the street and people are jumping all over you. But if you're sitting somewhere for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, somebody's always was always going to come up and want to have a conversation. It was so we, we had a chance to kind of experience that. And it was really fun. And it's it was it was enough to just have a great time. Very, very cool. I'm going to try to bring up this picture. And if you're on the YouTube channel. It actually is right behind Carl. Carl, can you see that picture of oh, that yeah. body glove? Yeah. 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 So I just uh, screenshotted that ad and uh, it's right behind you in the right. interview. I, this is, the, you know, we've had people on the podcast um, and I know this has been talked about from time to time in reference to wakeboarding. You know, wakeboarding brought in kind of this new style as far as board shorts and kind of this surfer kind of gear. 
but mm-hmm. you might be the first one that was really doing this with body glove, right? I mean, yeah, body gloves, a California company, from what I understand, uh, they're, they're more into the surfing scene and you bring them into the water ski world. Tell us about that relationship. You know what I was, when I was little, um, I used to surf almost as much as I water skied. And so I would surf three, four days a week, water ski three, four days a week. And that was just a big part of my life. And Body Glove was a great surf brand that I have always liked. And they're from, you know, Hermosa Beach in LA. I was in San Diego. You know, it's funny. I ended up getting hired by them. I interviewed them over the phone with uh, the Maestro brothers and, uh, and, and Greg Light was there at the time and a few of the other guys. I flew out to LA to, to go meet with them. And I walked into their office, you know, for an interview. And I'm like, you know, nervous. I'm sitting there just trying to pull off this deal with them. And they've never been involved in water skiing. And when I walked in the door, they had a sign that said, welcome, Carl Roberge. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. I'm like, okay, this is kind of, this is a good start. Good sign. Um, And so it, so we, I ended up, we ended up, putting a deal together um, that lasted many, many years. I, I was with them for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. The day they hired me was funny because they had they had this big body glove boat. It's about a 90-foot yacht, and they take it out in the, um, in the ocean. They go to Catalina. They do all kinds of surf trips with it. And then <clears throat> they say to me, they go, well, you want to come down to the boat with us? You know, and, and I said, well, what's going on? And he goes, well, I got Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton wow. Oilers at the time all on the boat. And we're going to go cruise around. We want to come down and meet the team. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. And you know what the, one of the greatest things about being at the top of a sport and it could be any sport, but the, the people drop their guard was with your, when you're around other athletes and so you have the opportunity to meet the best in the world in a lot of different sports and learn about what they're going through and, and what they're doing. And they're asking you questions, you're asking them, and, and you develop some friendships. And it's it's really neat. That is really cool. Yeah, that that is an awesome poster. In fact, when, when I'm still in the market for a wetsuit, uh, you know, I'm, I always pull up body glove. In fact, when we're skiing in the winter, we have the little surfing caps, you know, to keep your ears right. warm. I put them on the boys <laughs> to get out yeah. there. And so yeah. their body glove, they've got the, uh, the, yeah. the yellow body glove hat. So yeah, very, very cool story. And, and um, just such an interesting time to think about during the eighties and the rise of the pro tour and what you were able to accomplish going into those pro tour events for for much of the portion of the entire time on the pro tour i believe you were competing in both slalom and jumping not everybody was doing it it was probably a little bit more popular in the mid 80s to late 80s i even remember like shaylander was jumping and slaloming at times uh talk to us about balancing slalom and jump on the pro tour during the 80s because those are week in week out there's a lot of pro tour stops you know doing two events is you know, it's, it's twice the effort. I mean, it's, it's a common sport. So you, you know, you have similar equipment, but you're, um, they're very unrelated in competition. Later in my career, I really focused on ski jumping, which hurt my slalom, but you know, I, I, I just, 
I wanted to really focus on one thing and it, and, and that ended up working out, but it's hard to give up slalom. Uh, I love slalom and slalom's really been some of my first professional wins. Actually, my, my first big win was in slalom at the U.S. Open. So it, there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of memories there. My biggest, one of my biggest heroes was Bob LaPointe. Sure. And so I'd always want to try to slalom like him. I didn't. I don't think I ever looked as good. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you yeah. mentioned you mentioned your first slalom victory at the U.S. Open, and then between all the events, I mean, you were able to grab twenty-one titles of the U.S. Open. I mean, you pretty much dominated the U.S. Open there <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. Here, here, you mentioned your athletic ability. One of my youngest memories, because we would run home from the lake and hit the VCR record button back in the day. And I believe this is maybe still when I'm in diapers. All right. But there is a video and we've got to find this for YouTube. I don't know if you remember this pro tour stop, but it was Wichita on a river. Mm -hmm. And, and I think you fell around every buoy and somehow did a deep water start and reemerged made all six buoys and ran the course. And I remember Grimdage on that broadcast was just like, Carl, how did you do that? Um, tell us a little bit about these pro tour stops because this wasn't perfect water. You guys were going to the middle of yeah. cities in the middle of nowhere to big places, big open water. I mean, places that have tires in there to break the, the waves yeah. from crashing on the side. But your athletic ability and your ability to adapt, I think, was a big part of your success on the tour. I can I can honestly say, especially in slalom, I wasn't always the best guy, but I found a way to win. <laughs> and and I think you know the competitive environment just brings out another level of of effort. That's one of the one of my better traits. I think if I was in a perfectly calm water situation. And and there was there's no excuses or whatever you know there the people with a real talent and with technique really rise to the top. But when it becomes challenging, which is you know reality, I mean, if you're a football player trying to play in a Super Bowl, uh, you're going to have a lot of distractions. Sure. <laughs> you know, and in water skiing in a, in a moving environment, that water is just always moving. And then you go to a place like Wichita that you mentioned. I remember the wind blowing straight down the river, you know, and then it, with a current on top of it. So you got this current, you got this wind, and it's kind of doubling up, and you're trying to get through the song course. I, you know, there's there's a lot of events that uh, would have been canceled today that we still competed in back then. Sure. And, yeah, and, no doubt. And, yeah, so that was it. It almost became acceptable, and you just had to deal with it. But and, you know, people weren't happy. But you just—I think when you got out there and ended up doing it, it it brought out the best in a lot of people, and we still were able to to compete most of the time. Sure, it definitely makes the field grow closer together as they're trying to figure out, you know, the the talent and, and, and oftentimes survival in those types of conditions is something else. There's another YouTube clip of you. I believe it's 1986 mm -hmm. jumping and yeah. you're coming into the ramp somehow halfway up the ramp, you lose the handle. And I mean, right. you are feet away from the shore. I, I always wanted to ask you, did that hurt? And did you feel the shore before you bounced onto the shore? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it did hurt. Um, but I actually, I, 
I was in a really good mood prior to that happening. <laughs> <laughs> I had just won the the slalom finals. Okay. And, and the whole pro tour uh, in slalom, which is the only time I ever won the slalom pro tour, you know, tour championships. So I was, I was in a good mood, but I had hurt my forearms earlier in the slalom event. And so my forearms were uh, compromised. And as you're, as you're going into the jump event, I found out were in many cases, the most critical part or where you're having one of the most hardest pulls on the handle that is pulling from the boat is on the jump because you're actually, you're going up the jump when the boat is pulling you forward, you know, and it's compressing you into the jump. Well, it's also putting a tremendous load on your forearms and your hands. And my from my forearms being injured, my hands just couldn't hang on and it, the handle blew out of my hands. Wow. And um, I've done that a few times in my career. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> and because that's that's really a trigger point. If you're if you're weak in your forearms, that's normally where it's you're gonna lose it. But you go left. I mean, when you, you you lose that direction, you go left and you fly through the air and you're out of control. It's a really uncomfortable situation. <laughs> yeah, you know, any jumper will know that that rope is a lifeline. And the moment <clears throat> it, you don't have it anymore, there is zero control, even when you're trying to fall. Yeah, yeah. But I I, I think I was, I, I actually hit the water, but it, it was in shallow water and I bounced up onto the shore. But the impact was the first hit and uh, the hit in the shore was, wasn't that big a deal because I'd slowed down. But, <laughs> it's uh, pretty dramatic. For those of you just type in Carl Robert's jump crash and it will pop yeah. up on YouTube. It's an impressive uh, one. Carl, let's talk about jumping because it, it is remarkable hmm. what you were able to do in the mid nineties when it comes to jumping, but jumping changed a lot during that time. You know, we've had Sammy Duvall on the podcast. We kind of talked about even in the late 80s with the outboard motors and some of the pro tour events and how that evolved. And then there's this transition to bigger jumpers. And you were really the guy leading the way on that. Just talk to us about the technology and the aerodynamics of what you were able to figure out. Um, well, actually, it's it's almost a disappointing story, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> disappointing in that, you know, we didn't do some of that engineering ahead of time or, or earlier in, in our careers. I think that would have really changed a lot of things. The nice thing about it is that everyone was kind of developing uh, at a similar pace. Actually, um, I think Bruce Neville had some longer skis than I had the year prior. And so then the following year, you know, um, I had some skis that were a bit longer and then the evolution is was really all over the deck. Um, in practice, I had skis that I didn't compete with that were uh, would fly so high <clears throat> that I would actually I couldn't ski away from a jump because hmm. I would go straight up. Really, and, and so there was a huge de design flaw where there was too much rocker in the tip, and it was and they were too long and they were catching too much air and. Uh, you know, it was it was catastrophic, really. The sport couldn't <laughs> survive that. So that, you know, the rockers flattened out a little more and then the skis, you're able to go a little longer. And there was just a lot of cutting and sawing and, and building skis until you kind of got to that where I guess where, where people are at today. But I, I do notice today that 
a lot of the guys are not wanting to jump if things aren't exactly perfect. You know, if they're not, that the wind's not the right direction, if they don't have a headwind or, or if it's too windy, those are all things that we just pushed through years ago. And I'm seeing now it's like, no, we're not jumping because it just doesn't look right. This is going to work. And I think that's because they're on a real fine line with the skis they're riding. If they have adverse conditions, they can't control the skis. Sure. Sure. So, um, but we went through that in our testing phase. And then the, the skis I ended up competing with were ones that could weather the storm, so to speak. <laughs> so, and I think this is around 96 and this is when you go undefeated on the tour. Are you on 86 inch jumpers? Yeah. Actually. Yeah. That, that year I was on 86s and then the following year I was in uh, up to 90. And I didn't jump that much. I was, I was, I kind of struggled in my last year jumping that, um, but it was a lot more hit and miss with a little bit longer skis. Talk to us about your training right there. So like you're saying more in, in the modern day, if it's not a perfect headwind, everything is not right. We could just not jump, but you're going still to pro tours that you have no idea what the conditions are going to be. Yeah. So you kind of have to prepare for the conditions. So I would assume it's Tuesday afternoon and you got a pro tour date on Saturday and it's a tailwind. Are you jumping? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what my, my, in my training regimen, I would have a certain time that I was going to ski and it, let's just say I was going to jump at 1030 in the morning. You know, it didn't matter what the wind was doing, what the weather was doing. That was my training window. And that's where I did it. And same with slalom, you know, if I, I had certain times where I was going to train and didn't care what the weather was, you know, unless it was lightning or something, but yeah. you, you would train in that condition and that would be what you did, irregardless of, of it. So try to you know stay diverse in your ability to compete in anything that way very very cool i'm going to pull up another picture here you're going to like this one you see that the 200 foot jump club <laughs> yeah that's behind me as well <laughs> <laughs> you got that one i i, I, did, yeah. I did did it right i guess i pulled up this this is an incredible picture if you're on the YouTube channel and those for listening on audio. So there's a picture and um, want to give a good shout out to Tony Claridge actually posted this. You got Carl Robert, Scott Ellis, John Swanson, Sammy Duvall, Stefan Wild, Jarrett and Craig Llewellyn, Jim Clooney, Bruce Neville and Andre Alesse. Yeah. And you, I, I didn't have a year on this, but you guys are all sitting on the jump with your jump skis. Y'all signed it. Do you know what year that is? I, I would, I'm going to guess that was like 95, 95. Okay. And you yeah. can see the shapes are starting to change a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. square tips and everybody has what appears to be a little bit different lengths uh, right. across multiple brands right there. I mean, look at that. You've got KD, Exoset, O'Brien, Duvall. Mm -hmm. uh, it just looks like you guys were in the garage, just tooling up your jump skis. <laughs> I think Bruce probably had the longest skis at that point. He had the Exoset brand, which he was able to work with a manufacturer in Orlando, which was really cool. Let's see what else? Uh, you know, Sammy's skis, Duvall and KD's were kind of made in the same shop. So we kind of were working together still on, uh, with our stuff. Um, and, then, uh, and then you got Scott's on the Conleys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and yep. that's and that's prior to so that from a Conley perspective, they I don't know what year they came in, and maybe early two thousands when Stokes tips were introduced that changed the tip to more right. of kind of a triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that that's right on the verge of where everybody just went a lot bigger. One sad thing about that photo, though, they called it the two hundred foot jump club. There's two guys missing. And Who, that, who's missing? Uh, uh, Mike Hazelwood okay. and Glenn Thurlow. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. And that would have been, that would have completed it, but they weren't in town. <laughs> well, and I take a look at this photo, and when I go back and I watch the pro tour stops, the level of competition of just the the pure competitiveness of all of those athletes. I mean, the determination in every one of those athletes. It's it's always funny when I when I go back and I think about it. I always have that quote. I think it was 93 in Shreveport. Swanson had crashed two or three times and yeah. Dan Debahan finally asked him, he's like, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, I don't know. Sammy or Bruce won't tell me what to do. So I guess I got to go figure it out on my own. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I always wanted to ask, cause it seemed too like there was a really good group of people. Obviously uh, you guys are competitors, but as far as like trade secrets of, you know, not only what to do outside of water skiing, but what to do on the water since you guys are testing every day, you're probably figuring out some tips and tricks you don't want the whole competition to know. Right. Well, I, I think a lot of the cats out of the, you know, there's still a lot that isn't shared. I think that that really helped me, especially towards the end, but I'm happy to share now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, everybody kind of had uh, a lot of the bit of their secret sauce on the inside. And then there's a lot of people that depended on the companies that are building their product for them and they didn't have a clue, you know, it's just different. But I, I was really involved as, as, as close as I could to what was going on. And I can tell you the most subtle change can make uh, just a night and day difference on your performance. Um, and and there's, there's some things you can do your skis, especially jump skis that really make a difference. And you know, the, uh, the history of the jump ski is, is crazy. And I talked to Danny Kidder about it and, and um, a lot of the people in the ski industry. And the first jump ski rocker template, um, do you know where it came from? I do not. It came off uh, Cypress Gardens Ramp Master Jumps. Okay. Jump you know, those old ones they were yep. on the ski show. And somebody had a template um, made for the rocker, the jump ski. So that rocker was used with when, you know, they started making fiberglass jump ski or, you know, composite jump skis where the template was made off of those old wooden skis. From your front foot to the back of the ski, that rocker template is probably the same today as it was in the, you know, the 1940s. And um, it, it was just a, a, a where you can plant your foot and carve with the, with your ski that it just felt right. And um, there's variations of it now, I think maybe within an eighth of an inch or so. But if you look at the rocker pattern from your front foot back, it, it's virtually the same. And so as the skis got longer, it just became an extension of that out the front. From your front foot back, it still has the feel of the old ski from way, way, way back. Wow. That's incredible history, Carl. I did not know that all the way back to the 1940s for the rocker on a jump ski. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's from your front foot back, you know, the, the yeah, from sure. your front foot forward. I mean, from your foot forward has changed dramatically, but sure. Yeah. That, that feel and, you know, to be able to cut, get through the wakes, pull out, you know, get wide, uh, it, all that feeling as, is, is really the same. And what is the materials in the jump skis then? What they're using today is basically what I was using as well. Okay. We, we have carbon fiber laminates and combined with uh, aluminum honeycomb. Yeah. So, yeah, but the the layup the layups have changed a bit. I know um, some of the manufacturers are using a wet layup where they're actually laying them up and layering together. Um, other manufacturers are pre-engineering them at an aerospace shop where they lay them up and compress them and then sell them as flat panels. And then they're glued together when they make the skis. This is sometimes talked about in slalom skiing, but it goes for jump as well. How, how much mileage could you get out of your equipment as far as um, when you thought maybe the materials aren't as firm as they were when I first got them and they're getting a little bit broke yeah. down? I mean, could you get through a whole season on a pair of jump skis? I could. I usually had two or three pair. So I'd have, I'd have a set that would work really good for me. And then I'd have a backup set to replace them. And then, you know, another set that maybe weren't quite as good, but they were there just in case. And then I had the ability to, well, in most cases, I could have something made for me within a half a day. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, the, so I had a, didn't have that many jump skis, but slalom skis, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> well, mean, yeah. I, and when, and you're on the tour back then too, you're, you're filing, you're grinding, you're doing whatever you need to do to make sure that ski can work on a particular body of water. I've asked this question yeah. before. I think I asked it to Crystal Point, but I always imagine that period of time is kind of like a golf bag where you don't really know what ski you're going to pull out for that particular <laughs> weekend. Was it like that or was uh, you kind of had your go-to? I, I, I had my go-to, but um, I, I had, you know, five or six like it. Thank God I had the ability to have another one made real quick if I needed to. I mean, to the specifications of my rocker, my flex pattern, everything. So that makes a big difference, you know. I remember, you know, in the early 80s, it was crazy, though, you um, you would get a ski and it'd be your favorite and you could never get another one working like it. Sure. You know, and you'd see um, you'd see a particular athlete have an incredible season and, and win five or six events and then he'd lose that ski or something happened to it. And the next year, you know, he was worthless and he couldn't find something to replace it. Right. It was, right. a, I mean, it was a really big deal to lose your ski or to, or anything to happen to it because there was no consistency up until later on. And so I learned right away that I always had to have a backup plan. I think Annie Mapple was really good at that too. He used to, he'd have, he'd have a whole stable of skis he could do really well on and um, was, always had backups and multiple ones and but what we do, you know, we'd flex test them. We'd make sure that the replacement matched the same numbers you had in the one that you really liked. And it was laid up the same on the inside. So I'd keep detailed data of how we laid them up. So the flex patterns would come the same. The skis would be the same shape, but the interior of the skis what really made the difference. 
Well, I want to go right back to where we were real quick before I miss it, because I want to talk about that 1996 season. We talked about the big names in jump skiing at that particular time. Of all of the accomplishments uh, on your Hall of Fame biography, it lists that going undefeated during the 1996 season, which included eight pro, pro tour stops, was your greatest accomplishment. Tell us about that. Oh, gosh. It, thanks for asking, Tyler, that that and noticing that that's really something I cherish the most out of my career. It was, um, you know, really a process of really focusing on ski jumping um, towards the end of my career. And I spent, I would say, 80% of my time focusing on becoming the best in the world at that event. You know, I, I grew up as a three eventer and, and I, I was always competitive and one of the best at three event. And, you know, and I was really going for the overall titles, but it also really bothered me to be beat by specialists. And many mm -hmm. times, you know, I'd have a great weekend and I'd have a second, a first and a 10th or whatever, you know, but it's like, you know, it was hard to compete against the guy that just focused on that one. And I said, well, I'm going to focus on ski jumping and put the majority of my time on that. And, you know, at the end of my career. And so I trained with the, um, the U.S. Olympic team with USA Water Ski one year, and we went to the um, U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado, and we spent a week there with trainers and psychologists and all this stuff. It was really cool. We were doing um, our weight training, and um, I was asking one of the trainers, I said, what athlete in America has the highest vertical leap? I mean, who can jump the highest? Because I want to be that guy. Mm. And they said, well, <clears throat> you're, you're never going to guess. He goes, what, you know, what do you think it is? And I go, well, maybe a basketball player. And they go, no. I go, you know, a runner or a high jumper. And he goes, no, 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 no. Because they're measuring our vertical leap and they're taking our data and comparing it to other athletes. And finally, I, could, I, could, I, I couldn't guess anymore. And he said, it's a power lifter because when a power lifter has no weight and you and he jumps his vertical leap is just astounding if they're like above and beyond anyone else in, in in all of sport and i go and then i said to that point in time in my mind i said if i want to be the best ski jumper in the world i got to have the highest vertical leap and i got to have that explosive strength in my legs so i'm going to train like a power lifter okay and so <clears throat> I hired a personal trainer and we used powerlifting techniques over a three-year period to try to get me to this level I wanted to be. I didn't get to the level of powerlifter the way I wanted to be, but I got about 10% stronger every year over three years. And, wow. and in, my, in my third year, which is 96, was where everything kind of came together. And I think that's what brought me to the to a lot of that, those victories and and gave me that consistency and strength. It's funny to, and it's not funny, but it's really cool to strap on your skis and as you're skiing down the lake, you you smell victory yeah. before you, your first jump. <laughs> you know you've done stuff that nobody else has, that you're prepared in a way that no one else has. 
and you have a lot of self-confidence and you go out there and it just happened week after week after week. And it was, it was, it was really fun. And, and it was interesting watching the videos of that season. It's not only your lift and your spring off the top, but you were so dialed in with your turn, you know, mm. your turn, your control, your strength off the second wake. And it was just like you were lock and load at the bottom of the ramp every time. And I guess that power lifting, you just had to get yourself in that yeah. position. The, it was the, the mental part was the other thing that I, I had a hard time with because I, I knew that with with jumping is the whole deal is you got to cut really late i mean that's that's just the bottom line you can't be early into the jump and, and waiting and start decelerating or getting out of position you got to be you got to be right on target and it's very very hard in the heat of competition to cut late but maintain your composure <laughs> in other words don't change your turn don't change your mindset don't change anything because you're late just do the same thing. And I just thought to myself, well, if I get to the jump and I'm not going to make it, I can just let go, but, but stay on track. And it was hard for me to do that. So what I did is I wrote on the top of my skis, I had, I'd, I'd said, um, turn slow, cut late. And I had the initials mm. uh, on the, on the front of my skis. And that's what I'd look down and see as I'm going down the lake, you know, it's, it's just be able to, Keep your your turn slow, your approach progressive, uh, but go really late, and then wow. hope that it all worked out. Most of the time, it did. You ended up getting there pretty quick, but it was, um, you know, controlled. Well, and I had the opportunity to listen to a more in depth conversation about the training when you did a podcast with Wade Cox, and mm -hmm. I would I would reference that here and say, <laughs> yeah, check that one out because Wade does a credible job of you guys really go into detail about this and the off the water training being so important. And you had a comment during that podcast that I, I really had thought about for a while. And that's saying, hey, look, if you're at the leg press, right? Mm -hmm. And you need to get your off the water workout in, you need to bring it up to a particular line, but that's a fine line because if mm -hmm. you do one more leg press right. than you're supposed to, you're not gonna have what it takes to compete on Saturday and Sunday. No, yeah. Yeah, it's it's and and I couldn't always I couldn't make that distinction in my workouts. So having somebody to watch that and have record of it and and watch you and and your and what you're doing in your weight training is critical because you're you're just you're one squat away from not being effective on the weekend. So it's it's a real balancing act. I wouldn't advise anyone to try it on their own and try to get consistency and compete at the same time. Off season, you got a little more, you a little more room. I don't know. That, I think the athletes today have it figured out. I am so impressed with their strength and their their body tone and their ability to overcome a lot just through being in shape. The athletes today are in so much better shape. I look at the slalom skiers, they're 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 like zero fat. <laughs> they're like a rail and they're strong as a rock, you know. And the jumpers, I think, carry a little more weight, but they're they're very, very strong. There's um they they brought the sport to a whole nother level. Well, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. That's a good segue, is what are the major differences when you're looking at skiing today compared to you know, back in in your day, I mean, there's been a lot of technology advances, obviously zero off the boats, even even going down to the ropes and 
you know, in slalom now, we can use a couple different types of ropes if you mm -hmm. want a particular strand of rope. But what are those major differences? And maybe with some of those things, like you said, in hindsight, maybe we should have started that technology development of jumpers earlier on. Is there anything you look back and you're going, man, I wish we would have done that or done it this way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, jumping probably more than anything, that's they, it was really a simple improvement. It, we had the technology. It wasn't a big deal as far as ski length goes. That's was really a non-issue. We were really at the limitation of the boats anyways. The boats were so much slower back in the day. They were, you know, half the horsepower and the boats actually couldn't keep up with the skiers. And slalom, they couldn't keep the center course very well you know by today's standards in slalom there wasn't you know nobody would have gotten a fair ride you know back then it was um movement of the boat and the power of the boats made a big difference and i think it's made it a lot more fair and jumping i i can't wrap my head around what's going on with that now though it's 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 a bit extreme and i'm not sure how fair that is but i'll leave it alone <laughs> but it, it's um yeah the the speed the speed swing as, as the jump jumper cuts to the ramp is is so far exaggerated from what we used to do it's it's just not even the same sport it's very very different um in that regard i know they they tried to maintain the, the rules years ago were you had to make the boat had to maintain 35 miles an hour. That was the goal of the driver. They would cheat a little and you might get a mile an hour out of it, you know, come in a little slow, go out a little fast. But now it's, you know, there it's it's a speed swing that is just at a, at a whole different sport yeah. level. Yeah, it's a very, very different. Well, and, and two, um, I guess the big skis started to change that a little bit, but to carry that speed through your turn for a long time, it was a dramatic S turn, almost sinking into the hole, getting launched out of the hole into the ramp. And then the bigger skis, you had a little bit more ski speed. It looked like you could carry more speed through the turn. And now it's really finding that ski speed and then waiting on the zero off and you just get whipped yeah. into the ramp. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, I guess it's it's almost like <laughs> getting whipped on a tube. You know, <laughs> a kid getting whipped on a tube as opposed to, you know, a guy cutting into the ski jump. I mean, it's it's just a whole different level. But teach, you know, that sport moves it moves as it does and I'm glad that I I was in the sport at the time I was. It'd certainly be fun to go a lot further though and with a little bit less effort or a lot of it, a lot of, a lot of less effort, but at the same time that it, it looks uh, a little, I don't know. I'll, if I ride in a boat, when, when somebody has the automatic speed control on the, and they're jumping, I'm like, I just shake my head. I'm like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is nuts. Yeah, no, it's really, really cool. Um, yeah. So you go through the 96 season. That's the banner year of your entire career. I, I think you come back in 97. Do you win the Masters and jump in 97? Yeah, yeah. I was on and off winning. I My knee actually started really not working so well. So that was really what was drawing me down. I, I had a knee surgery when I was about 19 years old. I dislocated my knee. and that's always been something that's kind of held me back a bit 
it, it's just started bothering me throughout the nine, you know, in 97. So I kind of knew that was my last year of being able to ski jump before I had some surgery and whether or not that was going to fix it was yet to be seen. Sure. So you start to get on the latter part of your career and the, the knee issue. When do you kind of get to, hey, you know, I've done what I could do in the sport. Maybe it's time to to hang it up and move on. What What was that deciding point for you? Really, uh, at the end of the 97 season, I decided to have, you know, some surgery to get my knee, you know, tuned up, working a little better. And I actually contracted a staph infection from the mm. surgery. And that just completely destroyed my knee on the inside. So it was really pretty much done uh, at that time. I think I could have skied for quite a bit longer. I mean, I watched Freddie Krueger go on, just jumping forever. And as he started winning at the time that, you know, I retired. And so it was nice to watch him, but you know, there were, he had a lot, a lot of longevity. He's still jumping today. Yep. And so I think I could have done it for a while, but um, I, I had my day. It was fine. And that's really, really what ended. I had a little more success. I skied until 2000, the year 2000. And um, I go, I won a pro tour stop in, in 2000. And that was okay. really last year competing. Okay. Okay. All the way up to 2000. So right on really the cutoff of ski fly, were you like, bummer, yeah. I didn't get to ski fly or would did, does that never cross your mind? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I go and watch it. I'm like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, we worked so hard to get to have these 200 foot jumps and it was a huge effort to do it and and then all of a sudden the speed came up and the ramp was made more friendly and everything and these guys were flying Jarrett and Freddie and um Scott was doing pretty good with it too and I'd go and watch the events and at, at the time my knee was so bad there's I just couldn't compete I couldn't even do it but um definitely a huge fan and was there watching it very, very cool. Well, Carl, if you could answer this and complete this statement, uh, when you look back over your career, I water ski because. <laughs> well, I guess there's two reasons. One, it's fun. <laughs> and and the other, which which I kind of worry about now more is the exercise, you know, to yeah. get out and 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 have that physical activity. So when you combine the two, it, it, it's a great sport. Sure. Do you still ski in any capacity today? Um, occasionally I ski, um, not a lot, um, but I do, I have, um, I live in, um, New Smyrna beach and, uh, I have a friend who's got a Nautique about five miles up the road on a private lake on a lift. And whenever I want to go, he says, come on out. That's awesome. And so uh, occasionally we'll go up and I'll see him, but we end up doing something crazy like, you know surfing or you know or cool. foil or something but just getting out in the water um um it is fun it's just so much fun well awesome well carl this has been an incredible interview and i'd like to give you a handoff to where people could find you and maybe what you're doing today i know you're out there on linkedin i see stuff pop yeah. up all the time uh just what's going on where people can find you yeah, that'd be a good place. Uh, if you go to LinkedIn, um, I'm a, you know, it's a business account there, but I, uh, when I'm not in on the water <laughs> or surfing, I, I'm definitely working and I work in the insurance industry and my specialty is uh, employee benefits. So it's a group medical staff. 
Um, but a lot of my clients are in the, from the water ski industry. And so it's fun. It's a great connection. So I, I, those are my favorite clients, you know, people that uh, usually that ski, that have businesses or that, you know, are involved in other businesses because of skiing. That's great. And then it, it's just a nice crossover. So I stay in touch with the community a lot through work <laughs> and, and try to uh, build my business around it. Excellent. I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here, because I didn't ask it, what looking back was your favorite place to ski or your favorite event? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, well, you know what? I think what, the, my favorite event every year has always been the Masters. You know, the Masters has just got so much prestige. Um, winning that cup and on the overall back in the day was, was the ultimate. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. It's so much pressure and it's so hard to win there. Um, I would say that was, that was my first, the U S opens, obviously I just had a good run with that. That was just unbel unbelievable run. I'd, so the U S opens always great. And, and, and then going to Australia at the Booma masters, um, that, that is an incredible experience. Any athlete, in water skiing gets a chance to go there and compete against the best in the world and challenging conditions in front of close to a hundred thousand people is, is quite an experience. Very, very cool. Well, the masters and Moomba, they get brought up a lot on this podcast. So it's always good to hear about those. Carl, this has been an amazing interview. There's so much wow. that I think our audience is going to love about this interview. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We're going to have to do this again sometime. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tyler. And, uh, um, if uh, if you have any or any people have questions or whatever, um, uh, I'd be happy to help anybody who who's stuck on something or they could use some advice. I'd be happy to help. He's it, Carl's at that point in his career. He's ready to disclose all the tips and tricks. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Carl. And until next time, signing off. Thanks again for listening, and come back for future episodes of the Hit It Podcast as we catch up with current stars and legends of the sport. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida, and don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate this podcast. We'll see you next time.